You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Alan Chews is a novelist whose latest book is To Catch the Lightning. He's the book commentator for NPR's All Things Considered. Thank you for joining me, Alan. Hey, again, my pleasure. We have three very different books. Let's start chronologically. Let's go back and look at a, a re-release of Ernest Hemingway's A Movable Feast. Yeah, well, it's, it's actually the restored edition, um, edited by Sean uh, Hemingway, mm-hmm. uh, Hemingway's grandson. And, uh, you know, the scholars have been working and working away for decades since the book first came out posthumously mm-hmm. in uh, 1964. And uh, they've found a number of new pages, new pieces that Hemingway, that, that the editor and uh, Hemingway's last wife excluded from this. Mm-hmm. Important you know, parts, Mary, too. Mary Hemingway and the editors at Scribner's excluded about the there were about 60 new pages of prose. That's a lot. Yeah. And, uh, and some you know, changes and corrections, emendations, to bring the manuscript back to where it was when Hemingway first sent it in. Yeah, and he, he had prepared it himself for, for uh, publication, mm-hmm. but his, uh, Mary Hemingway edited it and, and made changes in it that, I th- that clearly changed the intent yeah, of the book. Yeah, just, just little things. Um, there's the opening, uh, good place, a good cafe in the Place Saint Michel. He writes, then there was the bad weather. It would come in one day when the fall was over. You would have to shut the windows in the night against the rain, and the cold wind would strip the leaves from the trees in the Place Contrescar. Uh, they or, they published it as, and I would have to change. I would have to shut the windows. I mean, it's just. Uh, taking away that second person, which pulls the reader in. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But uh, the, the real finds are in the, in the new material. This, um, the opening of the first of the, of the essays in the new material called Birth of a New School. I want to read this to you because it's so beautiful. The blue-backed notebooks, the two pencils, and the pencil sharpener. A pocket knife was too wasteful. The marble-top tables, the smell of café creme, the smell of early morning sweeping out and mopping and luck were all you needed. For luck, you carried a horse chestnut and a rabbit's foot in your right pocket. The fur had been worn off the rabbit's foot long ago, and the bones and the sinews were polished by wear. The claws scratched in the lining of pocket, and you knew your luck was still there. And then he goes on in this next passage uh, to describe... Uh, what it was like to write one of those Michigan stories. I mean, I think of Big Two-Hearted River that might be a little too early for him to be referring to it. I'd have to check the dates, but it's one of the Michigan stories. The next paragraph begins. Some days it went so well that you could make the country so that you could walk into it through the timber to come out into the clearing and onto the high ground and see the hills beyond the arm of the lake. I mean, that's a direct that's a, an image right out of Big Two-Hearted Country, Part 1. A pencil lead might break off in the conical nose of the pencil sharpener, and you would use the small blade of the penknife to clear it, or else sharpen the pencil carefully with the sharp blade, and then slip your arm through the sweat-salted leather of your pack strap 
to lift the pack again. Get the other arm through and feel the weight settle on your back and feel the pine needles under your moccasins as you started down for the lake. I mean, it's like time travel, isn't it? It's so, so He's sitting in the cafe, and he goes right into that scene out of uh, Big Two-Hearted River Part 1. Um, it's just a marvel of a passage. It's really nice to, to hear... We, you know, a lot of uh, students and, and a lot of readers, too, will be mostly familiar with Hemingway through his, his novels. And, and, well, that's that that's good. But this is a really great way to, to get to know the man from a... And it gives you a really different perspective on the novels as well. Yeah, yeah. So this is... Um, I mean, if you've never read uh, Movable Feast, this is the edition to read. And if you've read it, once years ago when it first came out, this is the edition to buy because of the, the, the additional 60 pages. Um, I mean, this is just wonderful for for young writers and even old writers. Like, mm-hmm. you know, makes you feel young again because you go back and sit there with him in the cafe. Right, you really get the feeling, his feeling of exuberance and the, the joy, the you know, the lust for life that, that I, I think characterized his writing. And you also see him, uh, alas, at the end of his life, in one of the appendices here, uh, trying to write uh, the last pages of this uh, of this volume. Um, and you know, it's a, it's a fragment. And he, and he starts writing. This book is fiction. I've left out much and changed and eliminated. And I hope Hadley understands that was his. his uh, Second wife. She will see why, I hope. She's the heroine and the only person who had a life that turned out well and as it should, except certain of the rich. Then he next paragraph begins again. This book is fiction. Then this book is all fiction. Um, this book is fiction, he goes on, trying to get this last statement about the book down pat, and he goes on about ten pages, including um, this... Um, you know this wonderful uh, tr- transcription of his his dedication. Let's see if I can find that here. Um, this book contains material. This is the late. I mean, wait, this is three weeks before he committed suicide. Then, and, and this comes at the end of the little introduction by his only living son, Patrick, who lives in Montana. This book, he's quoting his father here, this book contains material from the remises of my memory and of my heart. Remises, kind of, you know, storage bin, storage locker. This book contains material from the remises of my heart, excuse me, this book contains material from the remises of my memory and of my heart, even if the one has been tampered with, he's talking about his electroshock, and the other does not exist. young writers, a book for old writers, a book for young readers, a book for old readers. We're really lucky to have this. And, right and at a, the beginning of summer, too. And a reason to visit Paris, I, I love the, the Hotchner quote, if mm-hmm. you are lucky enough to have lived in Paris as a young man, then wherever you go for the rest of your life, it stays with you, for Paris is a movable feast. Yeah, actually, that's isn't he paraphrasing Tal- Talleyrand? You know, if, if 
you don't know what life was like if you hadn't lived before the revolution. <laughs> uh, and it's a nice segue into to the the book American Rust. Yeah, by, by Philip Meyer, a young, young, young writer's uh, flexing of his writerly muscles. Um, two working class kids uh, from uh, you know the Rust Belt of Pennsylvania set off on a journey. They hope to get to California. They never, well, one of them never gets out of town, and the other one gets a little bit further west, but not quite. Uh, because of a terrible, terrible death that they're both involved in as they first start out on their little quest. Um, and you really get these wonderful portraits of these two young men, um, one athlete, the other uh, kind of a writerly type, uh, mm-hmm. trying to figure out the world and their families, particularly the mother of the young of the. Uh, of the, the the questing kid. Yes, yes. Uh, uh, that's uh, Grace English. Uh, she's the she's kind of the the tragic heroine of this piece. Yeah, and, involved and, with the sheriff who's out to catch the boys. Mm-hmm. And the, the, also, there's a, a DA who's who's tr- moving to to make some ground for himself. And, and it's a really nice uh, portrait of, of uh, the the dead zones of America because we. We've kind of a lot of us have moved beyond that, but there's still these big, huge chunks of America where, mm-hmm. where people who, you know, would it used to be possible to get a high school education, get out of high school, get a good job that you could live in the middle class for the rest of your life. Right, and, and that way of life is is really gone now. Yeah, it's gone. I mean, in the stories about uh, the demise of GM as we know it, you see that. The, the workers used to call it by a nickname, Generous Motors. Generous Motors, yes. And, uh, and now they've decided to call it Government Motors. Right. But, it, yeah, you work for one of the steel mills, and you had, if you wanted to, you had a life, lifelong job. Good pay, mm-hmm. great benefits. All that's gone. And, and here are these kids uh, living in the wake of all that. Uh, kids without a without much hope for future in the place that they love to, to live in. So they try to take off. And um, I say they don't get very far before this terrible event uh, sort of breaks the back of their, of their quest. Uh, and Meyer's an interesting guy. I mean, he, he, here's a guy who was, uh, was born in one of these kind of neighborhoods and mm-hmm. ended up becoming a Wall Street trader. Is that right? I didn't know that. <clears throat> yeah, and, and, and he was, saw that he was... Uh, that, when he was making millions of dollars, there were people back where he used to live losing their jobs, and mm-hmm. and decided to go back and uh, write about it, and ended yeah. up with a, a scholarship at the Michener Center for Writers in Texas. Where, right, which is a neat place. I've mm-hmm. I've, I've uh, visited there. I've done workshops there and given readings there. It's uh, they've got some terrific young writers there. Um, but every you know, a lot of programs have terrific young writers. Yeah. You know, our MFA program at George Mason, we've got a bunch of young writers publishing up a storm, and uh, you see young writers popping up all around the country. It's amazing, even as the publishing industry, as we know it, seems to be losing its direction. Uh, there's a wonderful new generation of writers coming up. No, there's no dearth of great right reading out there right now. Brand new stuff you've never seen before, and, and Stuff like uh, Ernest Hemingway, 
you know, restored to a pristine and beautiful shape. It's interesting to see the kind of contrast between the availability and the profitability. <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe, you know, we're just back to that stage where Hemingway was when he first started writing in the, in the rented room above the sawmill, uh, <laughs> yeah. going entire days with, you know, eating only one meal. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that's the way writers go through it. Um, traditionally, they have, and, like, you know, maybe there was a slightly uh, exuberant time, to quote the man who destroyed the... Uh, market for us, um, <laughs> the housing market. Um, you know, there was an exuberant time when younger writers were getting these incredible advances, but I don't think that's true anymore. No. Although now and then you hear, uh, you know, somebody here, somebody there has gotten... Well, Philip Meyer um, did well with this. Yeah, I, 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 and he certainly deserves it. Yeah, yeah. And for our third book, we have a, a, a choice that will, I think, uh, deprive our readers, listeners, of sleep for a few days. Well, they will also lose, lose all respect for our taste. <laughs> uh, the Strain by Guillermo del Toro, uh, noted motion picture director, and Chuck Hogan, who's a mystery writer. It's, yeah. it's a um, vampire novel that... Uh, takes vampirism as a particularly nasty form of yeah, disease. Yeah, it, 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 it's, God almighty, it's, it's kind of, oh, it's just so brute, the physicality of it is so brutal and disgusting and vile and murderous and horrendous. You know, I'm only halfway through the book, and I've already had two nights of nightmares because of it. <laughs> um, and I will finish it, I mean, but, you know, this is what, volume one of a trilogy, Mm -hmm. God help us. Um, I've gotten halfway through the book, and and the mayhem has only just begun in New York City. Um, It's really, really frightening. (laughs) It it, it Uh, reminds me, I I think, you know, for vampire novels are are kind of interesting because you can have them turn them into a teen romance on one hand, or you can yeah. turn it into something like this, which is, I, I would describe as the, the hot zone meets I am legend. Uh-huh. <laughs> Only more un, far more unpleasant than either of those. Well, plus, plus uh, you know, Buchenwald. <laughs> yes, yes. Now, one of the things I, I really like about this book, or, or I think that's very effective, I'm not sure how much I like to experience it, is the... Uh, the author's abilities to put you in the minds of the victims of mm-hmm. the disease and the victims of the vampires mm-hmm. so that you can ex- experience this exquisite torment that these uh, poor victims are experiencing. In well, the- also, but also in these people who've been infected as mm-hmm. they begin to succumb to this disease of vampirism. Uh, you know, a, a man comes home and meets his dog, and all he can think of doing is listening to the beat of its heart and the flow of its blood, and eventually he rips open the dog and, as he puts it, or as the narrator puts it, drinks it. <laughs> um, and what, I mean, we, we need some kind of, uh, some kind of virologist to describe this book, too, because, I mean, people are drained of blood, and their blood is replaced by this viscous white fluid. What is that? Uh, <laughs> I mean, this, you know, this is a great, talking about 
diseases. This is a great antidote for the current teenage twilight mm-hmm. um, paper doily vampirism based on um, just say no to sex among teenagers of a certain cast and class. Huh? Yeah. yeah, no, this is this this will cure a lot of people of a lot of things, I in, mean, the, including the, sleep. The motto for this one is you won't be able to say no. Yeah. <laughs> and and uh, I have to say that I was impressed that uh, Del Toro, even though you have this, uh, what it, this book is very effectively written, I think, as a, you know, it, it unfolds very much like a police procedural. Yes, and you, may, you wonder how much is Guillermo Del Toro and how much is Hogan, because it does read so smoothly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and, and, I mean, maybe, I mean, Del Toro's Mexican-born, uh, Maybe he writes beautiful, fluid English, uh, fluid being blood and that viscous white stuff that replaces it. <laughs> well, and, and but it has a lot of his touch in terms of, of when you get to the scenes of terror, they're pretty visionary and really unusual. It's not yes, it's yes, not... but you know, I mean, when when you watch Pan's Labyrinth, mm-hmm. uh, you anticipate some kind of real horror that never comes across the line. I mean, no. he's, I mean that's not what those that vision is about. No. It's strangeness, certain kind of enticing alien creatures, but they're not horrible. They're not horrifying. No, these Whereas are... this is <laughs> true horror in the Lovecraft tradition, I have to say. Mm-hmm. This is, yes, <clears throat> Love, Lovecraft, excuse me, out in the Center for Disease Control. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a good way to put it. Uh, yeah, yeah, Lovecraftian uh, at the... In, at the CDC, and I think the the only thing that, I, as I finish this book, I kind of think back on my old rule of never start a series until the last book yep. is out. <laughs> and so I hope to at least uh, keep up the pace on this because it, it's really quite. Uh, well, I'm afraid you're probably out of luck. I mean, it's going to be like watching Mad Men, mm-hmm. or you know. Remember, or when you watch The Sopranos or Twenty Four, I mean, you, you know, you you can't watch all of Mad Men in two weeks. No, no, because they haven't released the second season yet, and the third is yet to air. But so I guess you could approach it this way: get this copy of The Strain and wait for the second two to come out, or just read this and sleep no more. Yeah, you may just stay <laughs> awake until the next two volumes appear. Yeah, Guillermo del Toro has murdered sleep. I've been speaking with Alan Chews. He's the, a novelist whose latest book is To Catch the Lightning and the book commentator for NPR's All Things Considered. Thank you for joining me, Alan. My pleasure, Rick. See you in my dreams. <laughs> You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.